Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 19, 1 through 9. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and some of the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, you're getting your outlines out. Just an update on my relationship with the pig. (laughs) Ellen and I are pleased to announce that we have officially adopted the pig. We uh, uh, are going to be introducing to you Aloysius Absher soon. And the pig is going to go on vacation with us to, uh, to New Mexico this summer. So it's all, it's all happy. Uh, before we get into the message, just a, a note about... Uh, I'm, I'm proud of so many areas of our church family. Uh, Mark got up and talked about uh, all the mission work that we do in a specific level. And that is, all of our young kids are growing up in a church where they see church as something that's bigger than just this building. And they go to all the places around the world to share the gospel, and and we're grateful for that. Another area that I'm really proud of, the way that we do things, just one of many, is in the area of mental wellness. As you know, our church is actively involved in the the NAMI program, as well as uh, these uh, grace groups and support groups that, uh, that are meeting weekly throughout our church. Uh, an event that is coming up in a couple of weeks on a Saturday, June 9th, beginning at 9 in the morning over in the Fellowship Hall and going until about 1 p.m., we're having a, a special seminar day for anyone and for everyone to go and to, to, to get educated, to find out about resources, find out that you're not alone if you're, you're a helping or a caretaker for somebody that struggles with some, with some mental wellness issues. Uh, we've invited Dr. Daniel Moorhead, a graduate of Pepperdine University, as a clinical psychology practice in Austin. Uh, many of you have heard him speak at events in San Antonio before. He will be here. Tracy Green is, is coming, and she's going to talk firsthand about some of the struggles that she has and, and to give us some insight into what that's like. 
And we also have the San Antonio Police Department Crisis Intervention Team that's coming to talk about some of the things that, uh, that they're involved with and, and that there can be cooperation between uh, the, the, our church family and with the police department. And, and we can be praying for our peace officers as they interact with all kinds of people in our community. And I hope that you'll be there. And uh, I want to, to thank uh, the Hollands for all of their work with this. Uh, you'll have an opportunity by being there on that Saturday, June 9th at 9 a.m. to thank them for all of their hard work in helping us to be a better church to this segment of our community. And with that said, um, let's pray and let's get into Exodus. Father, our, our passage this morning reminds us that the world at times can be hostile. We were reminded that we too live in a world that can be hard this past week with small children who have serious surgeries, adolescents who can be violent. And we begin this coming week gathering at gravesides. But in all of this, Father, we are thankful that you are with us that you are not a God who is far away or aloof, but is our companion in this life. And it is to you in hope that turns our bleakness to beauty into a weakness to stability and darkness to a blinding light of joy and of graciousness. We pray, Father, that as we think about this passage this morning, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that we see the real thing. The desire that you have to not just change our world, but to change the world inside of us by that presence. And so to this end, Father, we ask you to give us this this insight into this text. And this we pray with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you know, one of the the other ministries that our church offers is premarital counseling. We offer for free. And when we sit down with these couples, there's a lot of things that we go over. It's about eight hours total. Information and sitting down and talking and visiting and filling out things and going over the results. But there are these phrases that we use from time to time. In fact, we don't use them from time to time. We use them all the time. In fact, we try to drill these things deep, deep down into the hearts of these couples that are wanting to grow intimate with each other. And one of the statements is this. It's up here on the screen. Intimacy is the product of shared experiences. We say that so much in these, these conversations of premarital counseling with these couples, that it just, it just becomes part of our, our, our memory, our memory bank. That intimacy is the product of shared experiences. A relationship that wishes to move from exclusivity, it's just you and me, babe, to intimacy goes through shared experiences. Through all the highs and the lows, through all of the, the big problems and the little problems, Her strength becomes my strength. My strength becomes her strength. We go through this together. By intimacy, we're talking about where two people begin to feel like they live in each other's skin. 
It's two people becoming one. And that's what Moses described it as in Genesis 2, where you leave your mother and father, you become united to your wife or to your husband, and the two shall become what? One. They look the same in that intimacy. It feels like somebody is living inside of you. And that's how that intimacy takes place. Now, when we think of the first half of Exodus, we basically see it divided into two sections. The first is Yahweh as Savior. Yahweh, or God, as Savior. uh, Chapters 1 through 14 tell us how God, and there's all of these verbs, how God heard and He saw. He came down to be with His people in their distress. The key verse, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my, my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now from chapter 3 to chapter 10, God refers to Israel as my people 15 times, about two and a half times per chapter. God is referring to Israel as my people. You'll remember at the end of chapter 4, God refers to Israel as my firstborn. It is the language of exclusivity. My firstborn, my people. It's the language of exclusivity. But there is a perceived little distance between God and Israel that's obviously connected to 430 years of silence. My people, my firstborn, but a little distance. Yahweh says he's coming down, but he ties it to acting on behalf of Israel's patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when he speaks to Israel, when he speaks to the sons of Israel, he does it through the mouth of Moses and Aaron. So what happens now is we move, though, from exclusivity to intimacy. And so Yahweh is not just a Savior, but He also becomes a companion. He does life with Israel. Israel does life with Him. Chapters 15 through 19 record how Yahweh went with His people on their way to the Promised Land. Look with me in in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 13. Beginning in verse 21, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the, say it, people. God's with the people. The people are with God. And as they move together to the promised land, there are, at least in this chapters 15 through 19, there are at least five shared experiences. The first is the need for water in the desert of Shur. And then there's the need for food in the desert of Shin. And then there is the need for water again at a place called Rephidim. In chapter 17, you got a fight with the descendants of Amalek, the Amalekites. And then beginning in chapter 19, they arrive, not in the promised land, but they arrive at the mountain of God a place called Sinai, where they're going to be for about 9 to 12 months. And as they move from the exclusivity of the people of God to the intimacy of no one else on the earth is like you, my special treasure, 
my, in the old King James, my peculiar treasure, my holy people, my people, and I am your God, we see at least three things. First is care, second covenant, third is commandment. We begin with care. When we read these passages from uh, chapter 15 to chapter 19, we typically read them from the human perspective, which means that when we read these chapters, we want to know what's going on with the people, and we're sorely disappointed. When we read from the strictly human level, we focus on all the murmurings and all of the grumblings of the people, and those are really big questions to deal with. But something else is going on here. After water to blood and the frogs and the flies and the lice, those sprouting, blistering boils and hail and pestilence and darkness, the death of the firstborn, the destruction of the most powerful military force on earth, God does nothing destructive. There is nothing destructive from the crossing of the Sea of Reeds until the aftermath of the golden calf, beginning in Exodus chapter 32. That battle with the Amalekites is completely different from anything that has happened or transpired before that. God's perspective is is all about His care in the wilderness. When we read this at the God perspective, it's, it's about the fact that He hears and He gives. And he sees, and he knows, and he instructs, and he even promises to bring healing to people who for four and a half centuries have been slaves. And along the way, through all of these shared experiences, God is disclosing himself. There's self-disclosure on the part of God in his words and his actions. He says in chapter 15, I am the God who heals you. That is, I'm the one that brings an integrity and a wholesomeness and a completeness that leads to a contentedness in your life. In chapter 16, his blessing establishes all of those things that he has done on Israel's behalf, establishes him as the Lord your God. In chapter 20, he says, I'm the God who has ended your enslavement. Three verses later, he says, I'm a jealous God, which is a reference to his enthusiasm. The Hebrew word kanah is is about his enthusiasm or the the zealousness for this exclusive and intimate relationship. That's what he seeks with them. In, In chapter 22, he describes himself as being compassionate in the context of the poor. In chapter 29, his desire is to dwell among the Israelites and for him to be their what? Their God. Now, life in the desert, life in the wilderness, in the world, it can be hard, it can be hostile. And in all of these experiences, Israel is going to learn to lean on God. They're in the desert of Shur for three days, and they need water. The water in the place that they have found, a place called Marah, is bitter. And the people begin to cry out. And God tells Moses about a piece of wood that if you throw it into the water, it turns sweet. And then they are led to a place called Elim, where there are 12 springs and 70 palm strings, uh, 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 palm trees, meaning that it, it's a fertile place, a well-watered place. 
And then in the desert of Shin, they run out of all of that unleavened bread that they packed with them as they left Egypt. They come nostalgic for some crazy reason. For the pals and the mountains of meat that they had enjoyed back in Egypt. And so God supplies manna every morning. And it's a pretty good deal because it tastes like a rich cracker that's been dipped in honey. And the camp one night is, is covered in quail in order for them to have meat. And then they get to that place called Rephidim and they need water again. And the Israelites begin to get rowdy. And Moses goes to God and says, I think if you don't do something soon, they're going to stone me. And God tells him to take the staff of God. Remember the staff of God. Take that staff of God and to strike a rock with it and water will pour forth. That same staff that just a couple of chapters earlier had, had unleashed an awesome destructive power against Egypt blesses the sons of Israel. And then the Amalekites. The Amalekites, they attack all of the enfeebled, the stragglers, those that are slow, those that are with young and can't move as fast as everyone else. They're in the back of the entourage. And God enables Joshua to defeat them in battle as Moses and Aaron and Hur are on a hill holding up that staff of God. And in all of these events, all of these experiences, God is establishing the foundation for faith. And he says to them in chapter 15, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God, and you do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. There's something that God desires of the people that he intimately shares experience with. God desires the faith that makes obedience possible because obedience makes faith visible to everyone in the world, the greatness of God. James, the brother of Jesus, would write a couple of centuries later about Abraham in Genesis 22. He said, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. God, through his care, establishing faith in the kind of God he is. But that leads us to covenant. I won't spend a lot of time here because we've talked about it much in the past. Believe it or not, covenant not a very common word in Exodus. God remembers the covenant that he made with the, with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in chapter 2 and chapter 6. But then we read about it again when they're there camped out at Sinai. Chapter 19, verse 3, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You were there. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my special treasured possession. Although all the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. More is said about the covenant in chapter 24. But here's the, the big question. What does God intend to do with these people now that he has brought them to himself? 
And he enters into this intimate, exclusive, beautiful, special relationship with them called covenant. What's he intend to do with them? Bless them. That's what he intends to do. To bless them and to make them special. And when he calls them to live in a certain way, that is a, a life that is lived worthy of the relationship, that they are living with him, he is reminding them, I've done everything. God has done everything. He has taken these helpless human beings. He has taken them through hostility. He has taken them through danger. He has taken them through rough patches of, of, of desert and wilderness. And he is making them his own. And they have not contributed one thing to that covenant. And God says, if you choose to live a life that is worthy of this that I have brought into your existence, then this, this is how you do it. And what Israel brings is this, verse 8. We're going to do everything that the Lord has said. Because we know what kind of God He is. Which now brings us to the commandments. And this is where we end. Before the commandments come, God has demonstrated His care and desire to intimately be in a covenant relationship with them. When we think of the alternatives open to God, we are left staggered and stammering really without words. Because we understand, at least you know, all of these thousands of years removed, we see the power of the present or the gift of free will that God has given them. God, in giving us free will, sees us every day not only free to reject Him, but to do great harm to ourselves, to do great harm to other people, and to do great harm to creation. And in seeing that, He has options. We can go extinct, just like dinosaurs. Or He could have abandoned us and left us like an ant farm running amok and living with the chaos that we have created without any hope that He would ever come for us. Which, quite frankly, is the definition of hell. Instead, He gives us commandments. God's love for the sons of Israel and for us led Him to give us a knowledge that He is our Creator. God has shown from the very beginning that life has always required boundaries. I'm God and you're Adam and Eve. I love you so much, but I'm God. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our finite minds need fences. And how much more now that the world has fallen? And seeing the care that God has shown leading the people through all the hostilities of a fallen creation, realizing that Yahweh does not want to enslave them, like Pharaoh, but to be an intimate, covenantal, blessed relationship, they would look at those Ten Commandments and say, why yes, of course. It makes sense. Who would want to live another way? Why would, would we have any other God but Yahweh at the core of our existence? Or in commandment two, we will never attempt to lessen the greatness of our Creator by reducing Him to a creature that we can make and shape and understand and mold and command. 
Command three, he has told us his name because he wants us to know him profoundly, and so we will treasure that name. The way that we treasure the name of our spouse. There was one poet that said that the most beautiful sound was the sound of someone else saying the name of his wife. It was beautiful to hear. We will remember that our work must have a stopping point in order for us to consider the greatness of the work of his fingers, that we're finite as he is infinite, that we'll honor our mothers and fathers because they remind us that we have an origin, that we have an origin in him, and we're not going to murder those that are made in his image. Our covenant with God makes us who we are, and we're going to treat all of our covenants like marriage with the same kind of respect. God has shown himself to take care of our every need. Why would we not trust him to supply what we need by taking what does not belong to us and has been given to another? And we trust God's word and will speak the same way as our Father when it comes to authenticity and genuineness of words. And God is the author of my contentment, not in the people around me or their stuff. You know what? What's happening here is, is what we see a lot in the world. You know, a lot of times, especially you know, when you get to those early adolescent years and you begin to discover the opposite sex, one of the things you want to do is you, you want there to be kind of this exclusive relationship. And so sometimes you make a, go, a bad go at it. I, I, you know, I was really terrible at this when I was, was younger. But the, the line would go something like this. I'll chase after you if you chase after me. I didn't know what I was saying. And a lot of time, neither did she because she goes, I, no, no, I'm, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And what we're hoping for is that someone will, will say, yes, I will make you special. And because I've been made special, I'm going to make you special. And because I'm making you special, you're going to make me special. And it's, but this is not what God has done. God has said, I'm chasing after you. I'm not afraid to say to you that I love you. And that I'm going to bless you. And I'm, I'm going to take care of you. And I want to be in a special relationship with you. And I'm going to chase after you. And my hope is that you will chase after me. The problem is, is that we really struggle with that. And what is it that we, we chase after every day? I mean, we chase after all of the things that God said, I'm going to give you anyway. We chase after what we're going to eat and what we're going to drink and what we're going to wear, and you know the list out of Matthew chapter 6. But then that rabbi gets up on the side of that mountain, carpenter's son by the name of Jesus. He says, God knows what you need even before you ask. God is the kind of love, the kind of God who loves to give you what he knows you already need. So guess what? You don't have to chase after that. 
You don't have to chase after those that don't know Him, what they chase after in that kind of life. You get to chase after God. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. But you know what you can do? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. We're going to sing a song right now that is a a song of praise, and and it recognizes this God. And there might be some here this morning that have never, that have been chasing all of these other things, but this morning have decided, I'm exhausted chasing these things I never seem to catch. It's like happiness. The more you chase happiness, the more elusive it becomes. You know what hide and seek is with a little kid? Hide and seek with a little kid is not about hiding. It's about being found. It may seem that God is playing hide and seek. But like those kids and like all of us who play those games, it's about being found. And in being found, relationship. And being found, blessing. And this morning, if you've decided to stop chasing off after those other things and to chase after the God of heaven, the Creator who moves heaven and earth to reveal Himself to you and to bring you with all that you are to Himself, through His Son's sacrifice on the cross and love. Then some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want to talk to you this morning about that while the rest of us stand and sing. When my way groweth drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry. Hold my hand, lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. Let me stand, I am tired, I am weak. I am warm.